everyone and welcome back to Haunted History Chronicles. Before we introduce today's podcast or guest, if you like this podcast, please consider leaving a review. It costs nothing, but it helps share news of the podcast and guests I feature with others interested within the paranormal. It's a simple and easy way to help the podcast continue to grow and be a space for people to chat and come together. If you haven't already found us on the Haunted History Chronicles website, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you can find links to all social media pages in any of the notes for an episode. Come and join us to get involved and gain access to additional blogs, news and updates. And now, let's get started introducing today's episode. Joining me today is Victoria J, a supernatural folklorist who specialises in demonic narratives, experiences and phenomena. Currently she's working on her first book about demonic folklore, which started during her thesis research. Her thesis is available online through the USU library, called In the Presence of Evil, Demonic Perception Narratives. Her podcast is called Demon Folklorist, and is available on most platforms through Paranormal Buzz Radio. There and on her website, she talks demons, horror and folklore. We were able to chat about types of possessive spirits, the differences between negative supernatural experiences and something else. Why demons may inhabit someone's life, some of the beliefs around the origins of demons, and we dive into Victoria's own research and classification system and what she hopes to bring to this area of study. We were also able to look into the Roland Doe case and touch upon some other instances. It's a case that Victoria herself has spoken about at quite considerable length on her podcast. As always, you can find links to Victoria's podcast, website, and everything else on the Haunted History Chronicles website, in the guest information, and on podcast description notes. I think there will be many people listening, wanting to head over to see more from Victoria. A special thank you to contributors on the Facebook page for the Haunted History Chronicles website, where not so long ago, I asked people to suggest some questions that they might like me to put towards Victoria. I had some fantastic responses, some of which I might try and save for future guests and episodes, but I've certainly used some as part of this conversation today with Victoria. So get comfortable and let's introduce today's guest, where we can explore some of these really interesting and intriguing topics and questions. Hi Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Do you want to just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I got my master's in folklore in 2021 from Utah State University. I am a supernatural folklorist, but I generally um, identify myself as a demonic folklorist because my speciality is uh, demons. So I look at experiences, narratives, and phenomena. I organized a classification system of phenomena of the different behaviors that we saw in demonic related narratives, published ones. And 
organized all that information so that we could figure out the different ways that demons act. It also gave me information on how to recognize demons. And then I found out quickly that the public doesn't really know how to do that. So it's like, this is why I'm here, I'm guess, I guess. So so what inspired you to um, kind of take that up as your area of study? So I had had an experience with possession that I believed was a demon until I got through my research. It was only after I had submitted my thesis that I was like, this didn't behave like a demon. Maybe it's not one. So unfortunately, there is a mistake in my original thesis. It's available online. It's called In the Presence of Evil, Demonic Perception Narratives. And I relate that experience and um, how awful it was. I was 19. And um, I didn't originally think I was going to do anything with demons when I started my research at USU. I wanted to do something with horror movies and fairy tales because there's definitely a link but i wrote the paper for a class and just got over it so didn't really want to write that one and um i had a bad experience with um, an expert on the campus who would have helped me with that project and i nearly cried walking away from it and i was just like okay let's not you know get too upset here because i had to go to class so I was like, all right, what do you know about? What do you know an awful lot of information about that you could possibly turn into something else? And it arrived almost immediately. It was like, oh, you know a lot about demons because you did a lot of research after your own experience. I think it's one of those topics and certainly one of those words that there's, there's so much misinformation and a lot of perception um, around it. And mm -hmm. it kind of means that there's a lot of blurred lines and a lot of Kind of wading through the mud if you like to try and really get to the heart of some things because it's it's actually such a big topic area in itself it's it's vast isn't it i mean it's something that crosses culture religion you know geography mm -hmm. um and so kind of this very broad big topic you know you be coming at it from so many different standing positions and viewpoints um and i suppose the first thing to really kind of ask you is to just kind of what is demon folklore? What do you kind of define that kind of area of, that study yeah, of? Definitely a great question. So folklore, um, really, we just have to go back to, yeah, like originally what even is folklore? It means you divide the word lore, meaning stories, folk, meaning people. So they're the stories that we tell. I looked at experience specifically and memorats. So memorats are first person narratives. And I was very interested in what did it feel like to be in the presence of a demon? What did it sound like? What sort of things would you see in these experiences? What sort of things like were your senses pinging off? And that's how I created my system. Demonic folklore, really, it's just any story that is said to be about demons. So it's, yeah, very, very broad. But I focused more on that experience because that was what was most interesting to me as someone who has been possessed. And then what were the behaviors? What were the patterns? So that's how I define it. Just any story that is happens to be about demons and then kind of break it down from there. Does that answer the question? It does. kind of broad. No, but I think it's I think it's an interesting kind of position to take in piece of research to do because, you know, as I think we go into this discussion, what I think is very apparent is this 
overlap and this crossover with other types of entities and experiences that people may have. And so therefore, mm -hmm. there is this kind of murkiness to it. And you do almost need like some kind of a system, a, a deeper understanding, because again, there's so much mis misinformation about this, that you do need this deeper understanding to be able to truly understand what I think you might be reading, um, or mm -hmm. if somebody is experiencing something, you know, to be able to start breaking it down to, like you mentioned, understand the patterns. Um, mm -hmm. And having spoken to um, a member of the church before as part of a previous podcast where we looked at possession, we looked at exorcisms, we looked at the types of things that he does as part of his role as a as a deliverance minister. He's very clear, this type of thing is so incredibly rare, he's been doing it for a long time and he's never had any experience of it, nor does he know anyone else who works in that same capacity who's had to do it, because it's yeah. so exceptionally rare. He gets asked mm -hmm. all the time saying, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm possessed and I need someone to come and help me. And he's like, no, you're not. Because you know, <laughs> if you were telling oh, yeah. me that you're possessed, you wouldn't you wouldn't be experiencing what you think you're experiencing. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, you know, so it's a it's an interesting topic because, I, you know, there is so much out there that I think for the public who doesn't know, it means that that's their reference point and so the mm -hmm. fact that you have this system which helps to break down the patterns the traits the characteristics to make it clear is to really kind of give that picture picture to something that without that is just essentially what they might know about and have experienced and seen through tv shows or the like um mm -hmm. you know it, it makes it much more clear i think yeah i mean that was really the entire point i wanted to help I had had this terrifying experience and I didn't want people to feel like they were alone if they had had something similar happen. And it is very true what he's saying. It is so rare. There are only maybe, I want to say maybe 10 cases I've ever heard of that are separate from each other that uh, were actual demonic activity. And you start to recognize it pretty quick because there's one question I start with always when somebody comes to me because it, it used to happen a lot more when my thesis was first published and I didn't have my website out. So people lightly stalked me a little bit on Facebook and were like, hey, I'm having this experience. And I would start with the preliminary questions. The first one is, Do, have you ever felt during this experience you were in the presence of evil? If their answer is no. It is not a demon automatically because something that comes up in every single narrative I have ever seen, heard, or read is that they feel this intense, horrific feeling of evil and danger emanating from something they usually can't even see at first. They feel they need to leave and run. So if that's not present, you're dealing with something else. And then there are other markers too, like um, intense temperature drops generally, like they can also turn it the other way and go into like boiling temperatures, but it's most common to have the room suddenly freeze and it could be on a hot summer day and every other room is like 70 degrees or horrific smells follow you around the house or they don't have a discernible source, things like that. Right. They have other markers, but 
yeah, I was just, I was very interested in that perceptions of patterns, I guess, because people kept having the same perceptions. And I was really interested in figuring basically like what is the behavior of a demon? What sort of things would they do? And they do a lot of the same things. Some of them have different abilities, but they are not as mysterious as they'd like to believe. But I think we see the same type of evidence, don't we, in other types of experiences, whether it's poltergeist oh, yeah. activity, for example. You know, mm -hmm. you see the same patterns, you see the same characteristics that aren't just native to one country or one type of um, culture or religion. You know, there, mm -hmm. there's there's that crossover, which again, then in itself poses interesting questions because, you know, how can you expect things to be so similar when mm -hmm. they can be separated by by geography, by time, by, you know, so many different factors. And yet there are these traits, these patterns that you do start to pick up on. And that's the, I think, the interesting then research aspect and kind of discussion and, and kind of work that needs to be done around these particular types of topics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, there will be things that are present in almost every haunting of any kind, like foot hearing footsteps. That one's a really common one. There were even times because um, demons and, you know, ghosts, poltergeists, that sort of thing, they can exist in the same space because um, demons are thought to attach themselves sometimes to human spirits sort of like something else to feed off of to manifest into our world because obviously they're not here. If they were here, we would see them every day, several times a day, right? Not because they're so prolifically, like there are so many of them, but because they would exist here, right? So there's a veil of some kind separating us and supernatural activity. And when the veil is thin or there's enough energy to manifest into our onto our plane, then we see them, we experience them. And it takes time. Almost never is a demon just like, pow, here I am. I'm going to throw things around the room and do all this stuff. It usually is a progression of uh, supernatural activity. Now, this isn't always true, but for most uh, demonic narratives, that is true. It, but, but yeah, there are still similarities even just cross-culturally right now. So I finished my book on demonic phenomena and it'll be out probably sometime next year. I unfortunately can't announce anything just yet because um, it hasn't been formally announced. Just that I have a book that will be coming out. And um, <laughs> now I'm working on a book on gin and classifying gin activity to see if I can figure out things about them. But again, this is where I think it, it does it does become confusing because there are lots of other possessing type spirits and entities. Mm -hmm. It does mean that you have to have something to try and discern from from something that's happening between something else that it could be. And right. You know, having those markers, like you mentioned, having things that you can specifically look for and identify then becomes an important aspect to, I think, the work. Because in order to know what something is and how to 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 kind of deal with something, you have to know, first of all, what it is. And mm -hmm. if getting that fundamentally wrong, if we're misunderstanding 
these different types of experiences because we're not looking into them closely enough, whether it's um, that's a poltergeist activity, whether this is something something else. Um, you know, if, if we're without that information, again, we're not really we're not really coming at it from a perspective of of the full picture to then know what to do, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's basically the core of all of my work as trying to figure out what it is so we can best deal with it. Because I don't, um, I'm a researcher, I don't go into these places. I'm a little too psychic. And it affects me deeply. Um, and I think I would just be a hindrance to anybody who's going in there to help people who are possessed, or who have an entity in their home. So what I think, though, is important about my work is trying to identify it not only for paranormal investigators, because it's written for both paranormal investigators and the public, so they can have a greater understanding of what are the things you need to be looking for if you are having a supernatural experience, like Jin, for instance. I believe that the case of Annalise Michelle was not a demon. I looked into it extensively for... American Paranormal Magazine. It's their uh, November 2022 issue. And hers was interesting. And it was because I was doing something weird. Like <laughs> I was in the middle of the night and I was listening to her recordings on the internet of her possession. I don't know if this is something everybody can do or if it's like a psychic thing, but I call it the spine separating effect. When it is demonic, and you hear it over a recording, your spine literally wants to separate you from it and get as far as away as you can. I didn't feel that way about her recordings. I felt they were odd and strange, but what I originally thought was that she might've had a form of dissociative identity disorder and that it was manifesting through religious trauma. So I looked into her, her life and her phenomena, and I just kept coming across this barrier of this doesn't quite sound like a demon. There's some things that are like, okay, a little bit. Yeah, maybe it is. And then other things that made me go, this isn't intense enough. What really marks demonic activity is when it's like a, a 20 on a 10 point scale, the phenomena. It just grows in intensity because the demon then manifests off of that fear that it's creating by torturing the people in the house or the building or whatever. And I know that um, you've you've examined other cases. And again, I hope we can kind of touch on some of those. But I, I think you're right. I think that's what we've been saying, that it's it's a word it's something that can get attached to so many things and i and i personally think that that's quite damaging i mean from mm -hmm. my perspective i think it, it's something that gets overused and sadly for in many cases for ratings it, it attracts viewers it gets attention it gets people listening um mm -hmm. and the damage that it does is is quite profound because it it scaremongers to an extent that that's mm -hmm. one aspect I think it detracts then from real research and, and debate and discussion and um, furthering any kind of dialogue around something when, again, people just tarnish it all of the time by throwing words out without really kind of thinking about the consequences of it. 
And I suppose one of the, the questions that I've got, first of all, is just kind of, do you, what, what do you think that kind of popular culture and media representation has had on the representation of demonology, demon, you know, demon folklore um, from your perspective? So um, I'm part of the paranormal community. It's mostly like uh, paranormal investigators. Since I'm not part of that, I'm sort of like on the fringes. But I have a friend who is active in the paranormal who likes to bring me into these conversations a lot, especially on Twitter. So the problem with what's happening, and I've had to talk about this quite a bit because there is a very real effect of what TV and movies are saying and also what people are, quote unquote, investigating in paranormal TV, right? So demons up the ante, they make it so much more exciting because the stakes are much higher. It is not just a ghost. It's not just a djinn. It is a demon. And demons, as everybody knows, even if you know nothing about demons, you know that they're dangerous to humans. So I think that's what that's about. And some people in the paranormal, I will not name names because most people will probably know who I'm talking about, are uh, fear junkies. And these are the people that have TV shows. It's not everybody. There is some very real research going on. And people in the paranormal who want to talk to whatever spirit is there and aren't trying to impose the word demon on it. Most people in the paranormal feel the exact same way I do about it and basically just roll their eyes. Every time a new demon movie comes out, I can't even sit through it. And I would never watch a demon movie with me because I'm just like, this is, no, that's not right. That's inaccurate. How dare you? You know, <laughs> like just on and on and on for me because I have trouble with the fact that Hollywood feels the need to sensationalize demons when I could probably write them a better demon movie based on actual phenomena. And, and you know, we should be clear here that, that there is that going on because, you know, we have had films like The Exorcist. We have had mm -hmm. uh, various versions of, of, of this type of phenomena being put out there. And mm -hmm. so it, it does, like we've said, it does muddy the water. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And the real research, yeah, it, it goes either unnoticed like I don't have a huge following I only started uh really like it took a while for my confidence to come back when I got out of grad school I didn't want anything to do with this anymore it was psychologically damaging going into demonology is not for the faint of heart and it's not something that's always like it's fascinating but it's not enjoyable it is dark and it can start to mess with your life. That's what every exorcist who's ever dealt with the demonic will tell you. And I can say that it's true as well. There were several roadblocks to my thesis not even being published that happened. And, and the same thing is happening with my book right now. Just random things going wrong. So I think the real research will hopefully come more into play with um because there, it's always going on all the time. Behind the scenes, demonologists are hard at work, translating old documents, going into these places and witnessing it firsthand. What I do is like the folklore side of it. Um, 
but I've been told by other demonologists that it's very useful what I'm doing. So just to kind of come back to this as a kind of a a discussion point, what demonology is. Do you want to just kind of elaborate on the roots of demonology? Because obviously I think most people would understand that it has its origins in religion, but Mm -hmm. again, what that means is, is where it begins and ends, you know, I think they might have perception of, well, there is heaven, there's hell, and there's these things that can cause evil in our lives. But beyond that, I think there is very little information about the true origins of of where these come from and the theories that surround it. So do you want to just kind of elaborate on some of that? Because again, I think that's an interesting starting point of where I think misunderstanding starts to happen. Yeah, of course. So if we're really going to go back, we're going to have to go all the way back to like Sumerian, Babylonia, that sort of thing. So this all begins with, I wouldn't even say the Jewish people, but there's a lot of phenomena that seems to surround Jewish people. I happen to be Jewish, not in religion, but in my heritage, like we're from Israel. And so that's a good place to start. But really, the story goes as far as Christianity is that, you know, God made angels. Some of them rebelled because of Satan, the head angel who didn't want to worship God. He wanted to be God. And then he was cast to earth with these other fallen angels, and that's what demons are, right? So Babylonia and Samaria and um, Canaan, all of these places during this time period, they definitely believed in the existence of demons in day-to-day life. Now, everything past a certain point, I don't have exact dates. I tend not to think in dates. So I apologize if I just sort of circle around. It's just how my my mind's full of rabbit holes. But they all connect eventually. So what ended up happening was everything that was not of God, once monotheism had been introduced, was lumped into the characteristics of, oh, it's just a demon. This happened so long ago that classification became impossible. And I think jinn, shidim, so uh, a jinn is a creature made of smokeless fire created before humans according to Islam. This is a pre-Islamic entity, but Islam definitely acknowledges the existence of them. They were made of smokeless fire and they had free will. They were not human. They lived longer than us. They're bigger than us. Um, They do not live on this plane with us, but they are spirits they have families and they do eventually die and they do cross into people's lives through um sometimes it's because they fall in love with a human sometimes it's because a human uh accidentally hurt them and they're out for revenge that sort of thing but i think a lot of jinn were mistakenly called demons because of that overarching umbrella of oh well it's not of god just like the old gods that were worshipped in uh, pre-Christian times, they got all lumped together under the umbrella of demon. So that's really where the story begins. And I study the Abrahamic religions because that's where demons become very important. And I was interested because I come from a Christian background in how demons are perceived and how 
that religious aspect informs everything, my approach is to try to be more universal. The truth is we don't know where demons come from. We don't know very much about their origins. We have theories and that's where religion comes into play. Otherwise, we have no real evidence of where they come from. All I truly know is that they are deeply malevolent towards humans. They hate us. Like that hatred is talked about in these narratives as emanating from them. Nobody in the presence of a demon, when it's a real demon, wants anything to do with them. They want to run. But it's fascinating hearing that because um, not that long ago I was speaking to Professor Irving Finkel, who is the curator at the British Museum, and his specialism is ancient Sumeria, um, the Babylon, you know, the Babylonian culture, and Mesopotamia. Mm-hmm. And you know, he spent a lifetime researching this culture, what it tells mm-hmm. us, and um, you know, he translates the tablets and what they mm-hmm. tell us. And, you know, he's written about the first ghost and he talks about in depth in his book and he speaks about it all over the world about how as part of this culture, this was just rooted in their everyday lives. This belief in demonic beings that could have such an impact, a profound impact on your daily life. Ghosts Mm -hmm. were so commonplace that they were part of everyday culture. There was not one single person in their society who didn't believe in it, who did think about it who didn't do all that they could to prevent becoming a ghost or to mm-hmm. they, they would know how to deal with troublesome ghosts they would have rituals and prayer and all manner of things to deal Talisman. with yeah to deal with these subjects mm-hmm. and you know they had people who were exorcists within their culture they had as i say they had all manner of things and you know he's kind of said you know this is the earliest examples of this type of representation of the supernatural of the spiritual of ghosts of all of these different things that fall under that umbrella Mm -hmm. and it's only later with things like religion that these things then start to be shaped and molded and brought into other things and and i think what you were saying is is fascinating this is something very very old that Mm -hmm. we really don't necessarily understand because all we have are theories but they're also theories that have then been shaped by other people and their need to quantify things or their need to try and rationalize things or to control mm-hmm. or you know so many other things of the day that I think has shaped some of these these large questions that existed thousands of years ago that still exist today right yeah it's uh it's honestly quite daunting if you think about just the level of work it takes to be able to understand a concept like a demon Demons also, um, I'll have to address the fact that the word itself has gone through several shifts as far as what it means. Originally, it came from Greek, the word daemon, which meant a spirit of great power. And then over time, it became much more malevolent. So when things were put under the umbrella of demon way back when in ancient times, it didn't necessarily mean they were evil. When you read the Bible in its context of the time period, because it wasn't really written for us now, it was written for the people then because there were things that they understood implicitly about their world. Like that, spirits are just a fact. It's not something to be debated. They're here and they're dangerous. But if you read about um, 
the sort of things that they would do, demons are not actually mentioned very often because of that cultural knowledge. Because they didn't really feel the need to talk about that. Everybody knew. But when they are talked about, uh, because I've had to read and reread the Bible several times to try and understand exactly what it's saying about them uh, so that I could write my thesis or my book, this cultural knowledge, it really defines how you even see the Bible. When it got to about medieval times, like, so angels and demons were not even associated with each other until about the second or the third century. And it randomly happened. Theologists don't know why it happened. There isn't a specific reason. It just, it started to show up in the literature of the time, the Apocrypha. And every, so, and Apocrypha, for anybody who doesn't know, those are the books that were written during biblical times that are not considered canon to the Bible. The Bible is considered like the law of Christianity, but the Apocrypha were written around the same time and not considered to be fully accurate. But accuracy, you know, is difficult to understand. But um, somewhere during medieval times, the word changed from daemon into, I can't remember exactly what the word was, but it immediately had a malevolent bent to it. And then over time, that just got worse and worse and worse. And there's even the argument from witches that, because I'm friends with a lot of witches, pagans, Satanists, I think they're wonderful people and very deeply misunderstood. And witches are like, yeah, no, I work with demons. And I'm like, okay, tell me about that. Because I I truly just want to understand their point of view because I'm trying to create a more universal approach to demons. So it's like, I find their knowledge to be quite fascinating. They're like, well, it could be that demons are showing you like a face of theirs because of the way they were perceived so they sort of have a dual structure of maybe the old god that they once were and now this thing that has a frightening face called a demon the approach with witches is that demons are not something to be feared and my i would have to do a lot more research and it is a future project but i don't think that we are talking about the same entity. When I say demon and they say demon, I actually think they're working with jinn or something really similar. Something that can be friendly towards humans because demonic behavior literally 100% of the time is never friendly towards humans, ever. And, and again, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about, isn't it? That there's difficulty in, in identifying something. You know, someone might say a word like demon, but mm -hmm. because there's, again, much misunderstanding and very little in terms of data that people have helped quantify this and to really kind of put this out there for people to understand, mm -hmm. it kind of means that we can kind of start associating things with particular types of words and then we're creating in a sense our own folklore we're, we're creating our own stories that are grounded in an experience but maybe not referenced with the right types of terminology 
And I think mm. we see this all the way through history when it comes to um, accounts and folklore where there's similarities and crossovers between these different types of stories. And the wording for them and the name for them changes over time. I mean, again, I think it's something that I've spoken about before, just when we're thinking about the word poltergeist and those types of hauntings. That word only came into the English language a couple of hundred years ago. And so before that, all of these types of experiences were being referenced and spoken about in different ways. And so when you look at other things that come through through folklore, are they examples of poltergeist or are they this? There's there's that kind of question because, you know, we haven't always had that same way of talking about it and, and having that same kind of dialogue around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that just keeps shifting over time and folklore um, loves to look at that sort of thing. So what comes to mind is Newfoundland up in Canada. We have the folklore of the old hag or Mara experience where you wake up and either you see a some type of shadow or form in your room and you start to choke either because it is kneeling on your chest or your neck. And widely now it's thought that that is a medical thing that ends up happening because your brain and your waking up process have not synced. But it's widely known as the old hag experience because people believed that witches within the community were sending the old hag after them. And they would do things like pee in bottles with nails and all sorts of things. They're called witch bottles to stop this from happening. And that has come up many, many times. Uh, They're called apotropaics, I believe, where you do something with the intention of protecting yourself from evil. So yeah, like just the wording and the way we talk about that is fascinating just from that example, right? And then we also have Nowadays, people are just calling it sleep paralysis. And I've had hypnagogic hallucinations. They're very weird. And it's just because my mind wasn't fully awake yet when my body did. I saw like a bunch of spiders crawling up the wall. Or I've started to wake up and, and think about something or do something that had to do with the dream I was having. Like oh, I need to close the door because of whatever was happening, right? So yeah, there's definitely like a process happening there, but the process of folklore will keep telling the story as we gain more information about it. It's just, yeah, like it's going to keep evolving and shifting and hopefully hopefully my research inspires somebody to take it further. And again, coming back to your research, I think, you know, what you've done is you've got... I mean, we've kind of touched on it a little bit. You know, you've, you've started to do something that identifies those traits. You know, you're you're using these markers of common sight, you know, sight, sound, smell, feeling, and so on, to mm-hmm. use that alongside the the phases that you see when it comes to demonic activity. Do you want to just kind of talk us through those those five stages and how you've used your research alongside that that kind of process of what you were doing? Sure. So I believe that those phases of um, a demonic infestation come from the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine Warren were originally um, 
investigators. They were probably the first ones as far as being in the public eye. They definitely weren't the first ones to ever look into paranormal activity. And then eventually it turned into demonology and they became very, very famous and worked on cases like Amityville and um, the Enfield poltergeist haunting, that sort of thing. But they identified five different stages of demonic activity in someone's life. The first one is encroachment. This is when a demon is looking for a foothold in somebody's life. Because demons can't just come in. If they could, I think they'd be much more common. They have to find a big doorway to go through. I had been talking to a friend of mine at grad school about demons. He was like, well, don't they come through the cracks of sin in our lives? And I'm like, no, they don't. Because if they did, wouldn't you know more about them? Wouldn't you hear more about them? So that's like a a common Christian folklore idea that they can come in if you're a sinner, but everyone's a sinner. So obviously that can't be true. The way that demons do come through is through a big open doorway. So if you invite them in, if you are doing something so sick and heinous that they become attracted to your soul because it's so dark. Um, All sorts of things can fall under that, like uh, serial killers, child molesters, anything you can think of that violates humanity itself. But that also becomes dangerous. That caveat of, well, are all serial killers then influenced by demons? Like, no, they're not because humans are evil too. So you got to be careful there. But encroachment, they're looking for that foothold. They're looking for that doorway that maybe it's not open fully and they're trying to just get the foot in the door so they can push it open some more. The next stage is infestation. This is when they're already in, they're in your life now, or they're in the space that you currently live. So maybe they were there originally and you moved into this beautiful house that just came on the market, right? But if a demon's already living there, technically you're encroaching on them. So that rule, that first rule doesn't exist. So they claimed this place and now now they're going to start to mess with you. Infestation, they start to do all the classic things you see in like demon horror movies. Like they throw things. They do what are called negative miracles. So you could literally see anything happen in a demonic infestation, anything you can imagine and even things you can't like a big heavy fridge that takes two men to carry is thrown across the room. Doors that are locked and bolted are somehow open with the lock still intact. Physics doesn't apply in a demonic household. That place literally comes alive and you start to, usually it starts with feeling. You start to feel things. You start your body knows something's wrong, even though your mind is maybe not wanting to admit that because it's such a beautiful house. Why would you want to give it up? Or maybe it's in a great place or, you know, that sort of thing. Or you start to hear things after that. Maybe, maybe you start to smell things right along this time. It's only when people see phenomena in front of them that they're like, okay, maybe this is supernatural because you would be surprised at the things that happen before they're willing to admit that people can ignore a lot, but then it goes into oppression. 
The demon then singles out the most psychologically vulnerable person in the house and begins to work on them in order to go to the next stage, which is possession. And this is a very long process of breakage. To create breakage in a person, you have to break their will down, maybe frightening them out of their minds and weakening them to the point that they cannot resist anymore. This happened to me, this process. So what that shows me, because mine wasn't a demon, is that that process is similar no matter the spirit. Because I was psychologically vulnerable, I had been through a few heartbreaks and I wasn't doing very well. And then something came into my life and I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep because I kept having nightmares about demons. I was throwing up food and this lack of sleep caused psychosis. So there was and heavy, heavy anxiety about that. And the adrenaline coursing through my veins was three times the normal amount, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So oppression is when they break your mind down for possession, which is when they get inside. Now demons don't just hang out inside you for 10 years. The body begins to break down. And that is shown through the phenomena because people stop looking like themselves. They stop feeling like themselves. They no longer even like look the same as far as like their looks. Sometimes vitality is robbed. Sometimes they feel old and decrepit inside as the part of that oppression. And then the possession comes and something comes inside, but then hops back out. Sometimes it's because the will is comes back and people regain themselves sometimes but also because of the body and it's breaking down like there have even been um call it interviews i suppose where you could see that something was sort of shifting underneath their face i believe you can sort of see it in um the, the one with maurice oh what was his last name i don't really think in like terms of names unfortunately but um, he was the one of the Warrens cases where um, he had been filmed at one point and you could literally see his face shifting. So it's a very scary thing to watch somebody uh, be possessed because really what it is is just they stop being themselves and start to be absorbed into this entity, even their personality changes. And then the fifth step is death. And that I personally believe is what uh, the big demonic goal is. I've had people, when I told them what I do, tell me, oh, yeah, demons want your soul. Demons don't want your soul. They want you dead. Because that has come up in almost every narrative. Because uh, people seem to be careening towards death unless they get help from an exorcist to get it out. And people have died under exorcisms from and also from demonic activity. But, you know, once again, it's not like so common. I think it's an important thing to realize that, you know, those different stages, the different elements to it. Because, again, there is crossover with other types of um, supernatural experiences. Right. Exactly. And 
that's my whole goal. I just want to be able to separate the experiences and also eventually figure out what happened to me. I'm still not sure. We are about to celebrate hitting our 100th episode of Haunted History Chronicles on the last Friday of April 2023. To say thank you for the months of May, June and July, there are going to be daily paranormal podcasts available to enjoy on all tiers over on Patreon, as well as the usual additional items available over there. Signing up now will gain you access to these, as well as all previous archived content. For as little as £1, you could be getting hundreds of podcasts to enjoy, and more, and know that you're contributing and helping the podcast to put out another 100 episodes. You can find the link in the episode description notes, as well as on the Haunted History Chronicles website, along with other simple and great ways to support the podcast directly. It's all truly very much appreciated. And now, let's head back to the podcast. Just kind of like take one area, say, for example, common sites, but to then start pulling in all of this research of different experiences of what people have seen, how it manifests, what colours you might experience, shapes, all of those things, to then have almost like a, um, a list, a category, is something much more quantifiable. Um, and the fact that you've broken these down into the different kind of sensory experiences that someone might have and what they might feel, again, is just, again, just helping someone to put a picture to something that is quite a difficult concept because mm -hmm. there's so much to it. I mean, again, we've, we've kind of talked about this. It's such a broad area and there is a lot of crossover and misunderstanding. Here you are helping to shape what this is really for someone who maybe doesn't understand or doesn't know or have those reference points. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember how that even came to be because I think it was simply shaped by my desire to map it out. Mm. And then my folklore research and my wonderful advisors and teachers at USU, they were able to help me shape it so that I could make the point that I was making, which is these things are not mysterious. There is so much information out there, but my main issue with it was that it was choppy. I wanted it organized. So I took it on to organize it myself. I read everything. On like demons, a database, but it almost yeah, becomes like a, database. a database because, like mm -hmm. you mentioned, there are, there are so many things written about it, but you've got to wade through it all to really get to it. And even then, you're having to find that piece of information amongst all the rest of it. And so, having someone pull these threads makes it again just something simpler and a reference point. And like we just said, a database. Um, mm -hmm. It's much easier to follow and to understand and to kind of then see the see the patterns and the similarities with other experiences that someone might be having or might not be having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was exactly my point to bring all the threads together into something cohesive. So maybe we could create something that would make them easier to understand. So I looked at the common like there are different senses that we have as humans. And there was um, something that had been brought up during my first ever, and actually it was my last ever academic conference. It didn't go so well. 
Um, but I did have somebody ask something interesting. They were like, okay, well, what about balance? What about memory? And I'm like, well, those things, unfortunately, can be filtered into feeling. And then memory is malleable. So you kind of, with every single experience, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But I think terror makes us remember a little better. Even if it's not exactly correct, there are things about it that I think are correct. So I was like, what are the things that people see, hear, smell, and feel around demons? And using all of that, yeah, it was to create a database, but really to also create a checklist. That was really, yeah, the whole point of it. Um, And then over time, it became a database because I realized, especially from when I began to want to publish my work, I wanted just the checklist. That's all I wanted because in my original research and my thesis, I had to include examples of each, every single bit of phenomena. And I was like, that's not that important. People want the checklist. And what I was told by publishers is, no, people want examples of how this phenomena could manifest. And I was like, yeah, that's probably correct. So that they know some of the different ways that this could happen. Like, for instance, something incredibly common is when you see a large, dark figure. So it's usually taller than five feet and is black, blacker than black the darkest night that you could imagine and then seemingly negative space within that as well. So I have maybe 20 different references to how that can manifest. And sometimes they end up being animal human hybrids. I think whatever they think will scare the people the most. They interact with the environment. They beckon towards people. Sometimes they just stand there menacingly. Sometimes they fade into the wall. All of these different things that I kept reading about, I would write down and put in the system. And now it's become a database instead of just a checklist. But it'll be a checklist in the book with literal boxes. So if somebody picks up my book, and thinks this is happening, they can go through. But if they're not checking anything off, it means it's something else. So I guess that was kind of like the, the theory behind it. So we kind of um, spoke about earlier how obviously you've spent time examining different cases. And I know you have looked at the the Roland Doe case, which personally I think is... Um, I, I think it kind of hits, a, I think it hits every marker, doesn't it, really, when we're thinking about this type of activity or um, how this gets referenced. Do you want to just mm-hmm. talk us through that case? Because it is a really interesting case. And I think it kind of highlights a lot of what you've been talking about and referencing that have come through your research and so on. Because like I said, I think this is a case that defies any other sense of of rationality to it if that makes sense absolutely um have you taken a look at my podcast i did have an entire episode about it i just have i have listened to it it's a fascinating one and again it's just one of those ones where um i think most people don't understand the case Uh, they hear about these things but they don't necessarily understand them so i think it'd be interesting Mm -hmm. to just kind of highlight some of those those markers that you see that are part of that case that kind yeah, of absolutely. fit your research, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, so um, that one was a very fascinating case. I recommend anybody who is interested in that case, you can listen to my podcast. I'm not gonna like be like, yeah, you gotta listen to my stuff to know this case. It's like, no. I got most of my information from Troy Taylor's book, which I believe he really tried to look past the folklore and find proof and talk to the people who lived through this case and their diaries and that sort of thing. He really tried to find a paper trail and I seriously respect him. I've um, published with him before in Morbid Curious, his journal. So anybody who's interested, it's called The Devil Came to St. Louis, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he actually talked to Roland Doe. His name was Ronnie Hunkler. And it was after his death that he was like, yeah, you can publish under my real name. So that case was odd because there was a, I think personally, because um, demons, sometimes there is like an original demon that's involved in something. And then other things come through to sort of strengthen what's happening. Maybe a much stronger demon. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So what originally happened was the same phenomena over and over again. It was the knocking, moving furniture, uh, scratching him. And it was just that for a really, really long time. And then I think another more powerful demon came in and started to really make things happen. And this case became the basis of the exorcist, which then terrified the nation. And it became everything, I think, to demonology, or rather the perception of demonology because of the way, um, his name is what, William something Blatty Mm -hmm. had written about that case. So then in the actual case, um, Ronnie was being tortured. This poor kid, he was 14 years old. And it's unclear how it came into his life. That's something that I couldn't really get my head around because that whole tale about his aunt playing with Ouija boards and that sort of thing, that's not true from what uh, Troy Taylor had found. So... I, she may have never even come across a Ouija board or even known what it was. And the mom, Ronnie's mom, thought it was his aunt doing all this because she had died recently, but the activity started weeks after she had died. So most likely not. It's probably not even related. But I don't know how it came in. Because, you know, yes, in some cases, I suppose a Ouija board could help something come in because it is an invitation but there are safe ways to use Ouija boards I don't personally because I have no interest in talking to the dead it's no offense to anybody who does you do you I just it's not really my thing Mm -hmm. I like narratives and experience and that sort of thing but yeah so Ouija boards not everything you meet on the other side of a Ouija board is going to be a demon they're not common enough for that You might have a frightening experience, but it could be anything. And you could be talking to a person. You could be talking to a djinn. You could be talking to this. You could be talking to that. But if you don't end the session safely, usually by saying goodbye and doing some sort of protective thing, then, yeah, something might be able to come through, but it's almost never a demon. So that is a major thing that we've had to combat in demonology. But... 
because of the prevalence of how many exorcists, how many demonologists are Christian, I feel that has persisted, that myth that Ouija boards are a direct link to demonic activity. They aren't, actually. So that story, it's an easy way to explain what happened to Ronnie. We don't know how this thing came across him, how it got into his life. He was from a Lutheran family. Um, I bet he didn't even know what a demon was. Not really. And it's hard to say how it came in. It could have just been living in the area. Sometimes it is as easy as that. Or maybe it was in the house already or something like that. It, usually when it comes to these sorts of cases, there is an opening of oneself up to an outside influence. But I really doubt that Ronnie did that. So this one's a little bit of a mystery for me. But maybe in the future I'll have a better answer. But um, over time, it sounds like from the phenomena, a much more powerful demon came in and started to wreak real havoc. And that's when the possession happened. And each time that this entity was in him, he would exhibit a lot of the same behavior. He would thrash violently all over the place. He would um, say horrible things. He would just sort of know things about the people in the room that he should not have known. Um, that's one of the, the markers that a demon is involved when they start to exhibit unnatural knowledge of things they couldn't possibly know, unnatural strength, all sorts of different things. Um, and I created a separate classification system that is not currently on my website specifically for possession because everyone's fascinated with it. It's one of the most common questions I get about just about possessions in general. So I wanted to classify all that information, but it is separate from my original classification system because when you have infestation and oppression and encroachment actually happening, it's happening around you. When you have a possessed person, that phenomena is emitting from them. So I felt it was different enough to warrant its own system. With Ronnie, there were things about it that were fascinating that even lined up with like Christian ideology. Like this thing would sing in perfect imitation, the Blue Donabay Waltz. I think that's how you say it, Donabay, but it's spelled D-A-N-U-B-E. This is a song everybody knows, but they, they sort of don't really know that they know it, that you've heard in any classical music. And this thing was able to mimic it perfectly, even though Ronnie had never heard that song in his life. When it was played for him later, he was like, oh, it's this, this is nice. You know, he didn't know, even know what it was. So it kind of lines up with that idea that these were maybe something that was involved. It was once an angel because they were music makers in heaven. But then it would launch right after that as like a display of power into a horribly racist song. Or it would sing holy songs, but change the words so it had a dirty meaning or was making fun of nuns and priests and all sorts of things. He would do very uh, disgusting things that are not known to be something humans do. Like um, he would urinate all over everything. He would be able to spit, vomit, um, and mucus onto the priests. Like, and it would always be a lot more like material 
whatever it was that he was doing than was natural for a human. So if he was urinating everywhere, it was a lot more than what should have come out of a 14-year-old's body. If he was spitting mucus, they'd be huge globs of it, and he always spit with horrific accuracy right into the priest's or exorcists or their assistants faces. Everything he did was dialed up to a 20 on a 10 point scale. And that's how you generally know it's a demon because they never do anything by the half. It's always bigger, better, scarier than anything you can imagine. And again, this is where I think, you know, if anybody hasn't listened to your podcast and and seen you break down that whole the whole kind of reporting around this case because it is such a big case i mean it's 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 huge and there were so many elements to it and what happened to him and the experiences that he had through that process you know it's one certainly to to go and listen to and then have a look at i think alongside you know the the classification system that you've got that's up on your website because i think seeing them side by side really does help you to have this understanding that this is something again coming back to what we were saying this is the rare thing this is not the thing that people are going to be experiencing every day of their life this is the extreme this is this is something different and i think this is again work coming back to what we've been talking about we've got to have this this better dialogue around these types of experiences between the different types of spiritual experiences that people might be having with different types of entities and and so on they can feel the same but they're not the same they can manifest in similar ways but they're not the same and i think understanding these patterns and traits and characteristics is really fundamental i think to furthering the discussion i think so too um i think what i offer to the field of demonology, to the paranormal, to folklore, is I'm trying to find the things that make something special. That it's like, oh, this is not a demon. This is a Dybbuk type of thing. Because, yeah, there's so much misinformation right now, even just about demons. Talk to anybody who is actually active in the paranormal, and they will straight up roll their eyes and be like, ugh, demons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot because- of them don't even believe in them. No. And again, I think this is this is partly why I wanted to talk to you because I think it is a word that is so overused. It's it's almost it, it gets used to the point that it, it does. It becomes meaningless, and the discussion becomes one where people roll their eyes or there's there's so much sensationalism and and stereotyping and misinformation that it kind of means that you have to kind of push all the way past all of that to be able to have a, a rational discussion of well what are the origins or the beliefs of where these things originated from you know what mm-hmm. evidence is there how 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 and where do we see this this kind of discussion and stories you know how far back does this go you know we we, we don't even have those types of conversations and dialogue you know mm-hmm. it, it simply becomes someone putting out their own narrative and creating this other type of phenomena this this new type of narrative of that's a demon let's run around Mm -hmm. shouting that word and it's it it totally detracts i think from something of a much more rational discussion let's actually Mm -hmm. talk about this let's understand this let's understand the narrative around it and really begin to tease apart the details and see what we think Mm -hmm. yeah exactly i think 
because the word is thrown around so much, yeah, it is starting to lose meaning. And I know plenty of paranormal investigators are like, yeah, that's not even a real thing. And I can see exactly why they think that. If you've never come across one, why would you believe in it? Because it's crazy sounding, right? And then these stories like Roland Doe's, like that took on an entire life of its own to the point where books are written about it that have no basis in reality because folklore sometimes gets larger than the original story. Yeah. Because people's fears around the case. And if you tell it like, cause if you tell any story, something they teach us in um, folklore studies, if you tell any story, you are telling it differently than the person who told it last, unless you are reading it word for word, you're going to tell something differently because you're, filtering it through your own experiences, your own perceptions to make the story better. And then the folklore replaces fact. It happened a lot in um, when the pandemic first started. You remember online, there were a ton of, oh, if you do this, you won't get COVID or you can cure COVID with this yep. type of lore. It, it proliferates because of fear. And when you got like a bigger, stronger, faster thing that can kill you and get inside your body and do horrible things. That seems to be the ultimate fear for people. Loss of your bodily autonomy of your soul, of your mind. So I think that's really what happened. It just, these stories took on a life of their own and then paranormal TV got involved and realized that they could boost ratings simply by saying the word demon. And it, it grew into it, what it is now. But it's about then pulling it back a little bit, I think. And yeah. actually just looking at this a little bit more rationally, let's look mm-hmm. at it and kind of have this discuss discussion from a theological perspective. Let's have this discussion from a, well, what does the folklore narrative show us? What are the common traits? Let's look at right. it from a rational point of view of, does this have crossover with this, these types of experiences? Let's get back to that rather than the, the running around with you know the headless chicken type of approach because right. what does that feel? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what nothing. I'm trying to do. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of do anything other than perpetuate certain types of perce- pers- you know perspectives, and and that's where I think it becomes a bit ludicrous. But that's just my own personal. Absolutely, it does. And it's like you wouldn't believe um, some of the basic questions that I get about demons and how people will come to me and be like oh yeah I have a demonic experience and then I listen to it and I'm like no it's not and then they try to convince me that it is and it's like I'm not trying to be condescending that you have no idea what you're talking about you know it has become a real problem where not that I expect any person off the street to understand the phenomena and the narratives enough to know the differences right I know now for a fact, most people don't understand the difference at all. And I'm, I'm, I don't have a large following, but I'm out here doing the best I can to unravel those things, just like demonologists and exorcists are, because the folklore is now far beyond what we can even control. So we're trying to explain the narrative, explain what we know in order to unravel it from the folklore but what's insane is that if you really go deep 
into these narratives the way I have, you realize that most of the folklore is just as scary, even scarier than what people are out here imagining. Like I said, I think I could write a better demon movie based off <laughs> actual folklore. <laughs> Maybe that's something you know? that you could add to your projects for the future. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> someday, just yeah. Somebody is like, hey, I'm writing a demon movie. I'm like, I'm on board. <laughs> no further questions. Let's do this. Like, <laughs> Because I have a real problem with that, the inaccuracies. It is really upsetting because... You know, as a researcher, I'm watching people say things that are causing fear. Demons are not common enough to fear, not to the level that people fear. And it's mostly Hollywood's fault. It's paranormal TV's fault. It is also um, Christian-centric worldviews fault as well. Not to say that, you know, Christianity is a terrible thing or anything like that, except when it targets people who are not like them. That's when it becomes a major problem. And that's why I don't personally call myself a Christian anymore, even though I do believe in God. I also believe in other things, too. Our world is far stranger than we understand. So I'm like, okay, well, let's go through the folklore and try to figure out what's actually happening instead of what you guys think is happening. Because those Christian narratives, they'll put up things like this was a big thing last summer. Some news network had put out, it might have been Fox News, I'm not super sure, but they had put out the idea that a mass shooting had happened because of a demonic possession. And I lost my mind, like on Twitter. Then I wrote an article about it for Haunt Jaunts, because it was like, how dare you start to blame something you don't even understand when people are evil and mentally ill? Like, it's it's not like it's impossible. It's that out of every single narrative I've ever read about anybody who's ever been possessed, only three of them, I believe, had murder that happened directly during the time of possession. Like, it's not something that's common enough for people to point that finger. Yeah, it's just monstrous kind of how people want to blame anything but themselves and the systems that fail us as humans. And I think, I mean, again, we've seen it with other things. If we're, you know, just referencing um, Ouija board use, satanic panic, you know, there are mm-hmm. things that have always been targeted by other people to further, a, you know, particular agenda. And, mm-hmm. you know, it can be done in very harmful ways that have very real ramifications for people in their everyday you know, life. And it gets perpetuated then by Hollywood, by films, by TV. And again, mm-hmm. you know, we need to kind of strip away all of that. And again, just come back to looking at these things a little bit more rationally and calmly and seeing them for what they are really, rather than what other people would like us to perceive them to be and interpreting yeah. things from their own position, their own standpoint mm-hmm. of, in many cases, trying to actually create fear, I think, which is terribly sad. Yeah, it is. I mean, you you mentioned satanic panic. That was what I was getting at. I had just kind of forgotten that I was going to mention it. <laughs> but we're here anyway. Cool. So satanic panic is a major problem because it's happening all over again. Yeah. People believe that if you use crystals or you engage in Eastern thought or 
literally anything that deviates from the norm of Christianity is thought to be evil. And I, it's even been thrown around the word demonic. These things are demonic incense and yoga and black heavy metal and all this, all these random things that you're like, those things are not connected. Are you insane? And it's like, they don't know the difference because satanic panic, which, you know, if anybody doesn't know who's listening to this, it was something that happened in the eighties to the point where the FBI started to investigate satanic ritual abuse because people kept coming out with these stories. And then it grew into something much bigger where people were actually put in prison for crimes they did not commit because people were like, oh my gosh, it's satanic. It's happening again with witches and pagans. Anybody who doesn't follow Christian thought or Christian ways is now called demonic, pretty much. And I'm doing the best I can to dispel those things, but I just don't have the reach. And I'm hoping my book will help with that but I guess we'll see I think it's just uh, you know people like yourself other people with different perspectives having a platform where they can speak from their position you know it's it's having the chance to hear different people talking about this and I think so much of what we do can can come from learning and discussing and having these open types of dialogues even if someone disagrees have a discussion about it. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's really what we should be doing rather than simply inserting what we believe to be fact onto something because we, we think we're an expert when we don't necessarily know. And, you know, that's where it can be become quite harmful and, and terribly sad, I think. But, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's nothing wrong with a healthy debate and a healthy discussion and, and go from there. And like I said, having the opportunity to listen to someone with a different perspective that, you know, an expertise that maybe someone else doesn't really understand, but just take that chance to listen, be open-minded to it. And, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. I have a friend of mine who I'll have on my podcast at some point when I have better Wi-Fi, <laughs> but um, me and her got into a discussion because we talk about this all the time. She is a um, she follows the left-handed path, which is a um, form of witchcraft. She works in the astral realm. She has gotten rid of spirits for me that were attached to me that were making my life a living hell. And it has actually helped. And I personally don't see anything wrong with engaging her help whatsoever. And other people might be like, you paid a witch to help you. And it's like, yeah, I did. And you know what? It worked. So. Me and her get into this, um, it's not even an argument, it's just a discussion of, well, maybe demons aren't actually evil, it's just the face that they're showing you. Because from her perspective, these are the old gods that she's worked with. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, it could be. But from the narratives that I've examined, they have no love for humanity. They want destruction. And their behavior says that every single time. So me and her just sort of like agree to disagree and are just like, yeah, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. And she's like, we may not be. And one of my lines of inquiry for my own research and my own understanding is I'm going to have to interview witches and pagans and anybody who has worked with a demon or a so-called demon. Maybe they call themselves that when they aren't demons. 
that sort of thing, to fully understand that perspective, because even in demonology, it's very Christian-centric. And nobody seems to go outside of that, and they, in in a way, are, are demonized for that, for going outside of the Christian perspective of demonology. I want there to be a more universal approach, something that even if you don't believe in demons, you can be like, oh, the folklore, though, is saying this, and that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 again, this is kind of why I wanted to to chat with you because I think it's I think it's something that um, certainly resonates from especially that point of view that you were just making. You know, this need to have this kind of almost universal kind of way of looking at it that that takes away these these kind of separate things that might muddy the water or make it a difficult concept. If that makes sense, you know, let's actually just all ta- all our own biases if you like let's take our own biases out let's look Mm -hmm. at this and examine this for what it tells us without these things interfering in some way our own belief systems whether it's religion whether it's you know our own supernatural belief systems what we think about what happens to us after death you know whatever it is let's take all of these things away and let's just talk about it And, and again I think that's what you're doing that's slightly different you know you are just really looking at it this from the perspective of what do these narratives tell us? What do they show us? What can we glean from this? What do we understand about these things? Um, how does it then fit into what you believe? You mm-hmm. know, how does it fit into what you see um, or you're experiencing or you're investigating or how you maybe perceive that word of demon? You know, you can kind of take from it what you need to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I love folklore for that exact reason, because here's the truth. In folklore, it does not matter if it's real or not. The story is real. Yeah. it the We call it in folklore, the story is true. Because it is told as true. It yeah. doesn't matter if you made it up. If you're telling it as true, it becomes true in someone's mind. So that's how like urban legends tend to proliferate because somebody believed that story, but it's just a little bit too good. It's not, it has polishing, even if you don't realize it. So yeah, like we know these things as folklorists. And that's what I think I loved about it is that somebody could easily come up to me and be like, oh, well, demons aren't real. And I'm like, okay, we don't need to have this conversation. <laughs> like. Not because I dismiss their point of view, but because I cannot convince you that my belief is real. I will present you with the evidence of the folklore and just tell you, okay, this is just folklore. This is what is said about it. Do I need you to sit here and believe in demons with me? No, it's folklore. So I've actually never had that question, though. Like, I've heard a lot of... um, paranormal investigators get the you don't really believe in ghosts do you but for some reason in my entire couple years of doing this nope have i never gotten that question you don't really believe in demons no for some reason probably religion they're uh they're widely believed in which again and and i personally think things like this are on the rise you know this type of this type of kind of interest is 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 continuing to be on the rise um and like you mentioned it's i think in part down to what is put out there by mass media but it's certainly 
creates this other type of hype that again I think is 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 just part of that evolution it's it's the thing that kind of drives it and helps to feed it but at the mm-hmm. same time then is kind of like looking at it from below what's happening below the surface let's actually let's pair it back pair let's it. have that real discussion yeah. rather than the hype <laughs> yeah exactly um so I know several like uh, paranormal investigators. One of them is a friend of mine. And I was talking to him and he was like, Hey, I was using your classification system, but actually I'd love to get your perspective. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I live for this. Tell me everything. He's like, okay, I'm not sure if this is demonic or not. And I'm like, okay, tell me the phenomena, what has been happening. And he tells me and systematically through the knowledge that I've gained through this, I'm like, I think it's this because of this, 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 and this. And his mom was a very um, Christian-centric person. And she had read what I said. And she was like, no, I'm convinced that she's right. Just because I was looking at it in a way that wasn't fear-based. Mm-hmm. It was based on, okay, I don't think it's this because of this. And this because of this. Because this is what I know about demonology. Here's the 15 reasons why I could tell you this isn't a demon but something religious is happening. So, but again, it comes back to what we were saying, you you know, it's, it's just coming at it from a different perspective where, you know, biases and other things that can influence get taken out. And instead what you're looking at is what these (laughs) accounts, what folklore tells you, what you can learn from how you've classified all of that and put it together to collate it all together Mm-hmm. In terms of, well, what does that then give you as your perspective? What do you think it then shows from your position of having looked at this in detail? And again, that's just a a, a kind of a, a different take in the sense that, you know, if we could do that with a particular type of phenomena, say, for example, someone's experiencing something and different people with these different experiences brought their knowledge to the table to examine what's happening and have that discussion. How amazing would that be? You know, what would that kind of mean in terms of our understanding of what's happening if we were able to share our different experiences, our um, research, our our knowledge to, to just understand something that's being presented in that way rather than everybody sitting on that and safeguarding the information that they have or just not having that dialogue to begin with. Yeah, I think it'd be amazing. Um, That's exactly the reasoning behind me. I want to talk to everybody Mm. about this, about Mm. what do you think is happening? Like I like to talk uh, to just like people who are theologists. I like to talk to pagans or whoever, like it doesn't, matter who it is or even like if you're from a cultural background that's different it's like irish people tell me what you think about this have you ever seen this before yeah type of thing yeah because these i think all of the views are valuable even if they're not completely correct and we can't truly prove what is correct and what is not in the paranormal but through a, a systematic way of looking at things maybe we can get closer to the truth and i would just love it if there wasn't as much anger and fear 
behind people being like, no, I'm right because I am this religion or that religion. That why does it have to be about us being right? Why can't we all search for the truth in our own way and bring it all to the table? I think it'd be amazing if everybody could sort of lay down their arms mm-hmm. and just sort of be like, so this is what I think about this. What do you think about this? You know? Absolutely. And, and you know, with that in mind, I would say that, you know, I'll make sure that all of your information is put on the, you know, the website when the podcast goes out so that people can be signposted to you because I do recommend they take a listen to, you know, the podcast that you've got up on your site. Um, take a look at the material that you've got, up, you know, you've got up there and you're, you're easily accessible. It's something that you can, you can have a look through and again, take from it what you need to take from it you know from your position just have a look be that be that open mind and um yeah I, I I very much recommend that people do that go and find you have a listen to some of the things that you've got to say on some of the different podcasts you've got up there and take a look at the different material that you've published on your website and, and beyond that because like I said I think there's nothing wrong with that I think it's a helpful and and um very useful thing to do to broaden our our kind of mindset and broaden our own our own positions and understanding sometime and question and critique what we think you know there's something again healthy in that I think um to deepen our understanding so yeah well I'll yeah, make sure you. you do that and thank you so much for this incredible chat honestly it's just I think I said at the beginning, it's it's something that once you start talking about it, it really can branch off into so many different other areas. <laughs> so many things. <laughs> Just come down the rabbit hole with me anytime you want. <laughs> it is that. It is a rabbit hole. But I think so much of this this area is is like that because there is so much crossover. And so, again, just be open-minded be that person that kind of questions and raises questions and has that dialogue. And, and I think we'll all benefit from, from that kind of approach really. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for your time, Victoria. It was an, honestly, it was incredible to chat with you and I appreciate you uh, spending the time to do that with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I I really enjoyed uh, the different things you were asking me because every single podcaster is different and I love hearing from different people about the things that my research brought up in you specifically, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, so thanks mm-hmm. for having me. And I will say goodbye to everybody listening. Bye everyone. Bye.